Just a quick word about uh, being at Voyagers on the 11th of November. I, I called and asked them if we could use the, the gymnasium and meet in there while their services were going on in the sanctuary. And they said, no problem. Uh, then uh, I got a call back a little later from a good friend who's on staff over there. And he said, why don't, when you come on over, you speak at both services and then they can attend whatever one they want. And so that's the plan right now. Uh, and I said, is there a service that you would prefer they attend? And uh, we usually start at 10, 10, 15, a little easy around here, but nevertheless... Uh, they mentioned maybe the second service at 1045 would probably be the one they would be more used to do. So if you want to meet at that time, uh, you can decide amongst yourself. You don't have to. You can go to the 9 o'clock service. They're clones of one another. The other thing is, is that they will be armed and ready to take your little children if the, your children want to go. Uh, there's a wonderful nursery there and uh, graded Sunday school classes both hours, but especially if you go second hour, they, they've got uh, everybody there and equipped. So if your children will be interested in grouping in with a, you know, another group, uh, you've got to decide that. But nevertheless, they're happy to host us, and uh, they look forward to that very, very much in that regard. All right, we, in fact, are going through the book of Philippians, uh, at least somewhat, and um, uh, this is our third lesson. Uh, we began a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Philippi, by the way, as a little reminder here, happened to be in Macedonia, which is modern-day northern Greece. It was founded by Philip II, so he named the city after himself. Philip II was also the father of Alexander the Great. So after Rome conquered Greece, what happened is, is that Philippi became a Roman colony, primarily because it rested right on what is called the Ignatian Way, which is the main artery from Rome to all of the provinces to the east that were in her empire. Now, during Paul's ministry in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey, working with the churches over there, he heard the Macedonian call. He was working with a guy named Silas, and Silas, and he sailed across the Aegean Sea, and they got to Philippi. When they got to Philippi, uh, doing a little bit of street ministry, there was a, a demon-possessed girl, and uh, they got a hold of her and cast the demon out of her, uh, she had owners, by the way, that were profiteering from her uh, ability to tell fortunes. And all of a sudden, the money spigot was cut off when the demon left, and they took Paul and Silas out into the streets and beat them up and threw them in prison there. Uh, you know, dragged them right into the place. Now, again, you remember a little bit about it, how in the midnight, Paul and Silas were singing hymns of to God and so forth, and uh, then God sent a localized earthquake, and it opened up the doors of the jail, and all of a sudden, the jailer realized that, my goodness, you know, I'm going to pay with my life if I lose a prisoner here, and in fact, he began to, to make preparations to take his own life when Paul stopped him and said, no, don't do that, we're all here. 
And uh, the jailer was so impressed that he embraced uh, Christ as Savior and Lord and became a follower of the Lord Jesus. And uh, other followers um, became, you know, other followers of Christ uh, happened, uh, you know, in the days ahead, and a church was planted. Now, the, the church of Philippi became an encouragement to the Apostle Paul, really, for the rest of his life. He was uh, uh, ministered to by them. Uh, he was there in jail until he returned to Jerusalem, by the way. He always had a heart to reach his own people, the Jews, for Jesus Christ. So whenever he could get back to Israel, he, uh, he did. And so he went from Philippi back down to the coastal city and then traveled inland to to the city of Jerusalem, and it was in the city of Jerusalem uh, that uh, he was accused of disturbing the peace. Now, he really wasn't doing that, but they framed him and wanted him to stop doing what he was doing. Of course, uh, uh, you know, he didn't do anything politically wrong, but he was incarcerated uh, for a period of time for disturbing the peace. Now, Paul himself... Uh, the reason that he disturbed the peace is because the radical Jews didn't like the fact that Paul was saying that the Gentiles could be part of the people of God. Now, it wasn't that the Jews minded the Gentiles becoming God's people or receiving their Messiah. What they didn't like is that uh, they didn't like the Gentiles being told by the Apostle Paul that they could go straight to Mount Calvary and receive forgiveness without going to Mount Sinai and embracing the Jewish law. And as a result of that, they had Paul thrown in prison again, only this time it was in a place called Caesarea, which is in the northern part, a uh, coastal city there in, uh, in Israel as well. Now, while he was in Caesarea, he appealed to a couple of leaders, Felix and Festus, but it didn't get anywhere. He had been framed. He was there when he shouldn't have been there. So, as a Roman citizen, Paul appealed to Caesar. And when he appealed to Caesar, he was immediately put on a ship, and they sailed to Rome. When he got to Rome, he was put in prison in Rome. And he stayed in Rome, in the prison in Rome, for two years. And the reason because of that was uh, habeas corpus. It protected citizen from unlawful detention. And uh, it was, you know, you could only be there for a couple of years. And after two years, the Jews didn't show up in Rome to press any charges, and so Paul was free. Now, he knew about this. He knew the drill. He knew that he would eventually be set free. But this was 10 years later after the Macedonian call when he first went to Philippi. So time has passed during that time. Uh, just because Paul was in prison uh, and he didn't, uh, you know, he had all kinds of freedom to do what he wanted to do, it doesn't necessarily mean that prison was easy. Can you imagine? being chained to somebody, a Praetorian guard. They said that uh, the gospel was going out and the Praetorian guard was receiving the gospel. That's because they were, he, you know, he had a different shift. Every shift, a different member of the Praetorian guard was handcuffed to the Apostle Paul. And so, uh, you know, he got opportunities to share the Lord with them. And uh, lo and behold, it was... Uh, 
uh, you know, something that uh, they embraced over a period of time. You know, I, I got to thinking, you know, what about, uh, you know, other than, you know, perhaps visiting the latrine or something like that, what would it be like to spend two years in prison and to never be alone? You know, it's kind of like uh, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, uh, statement here when he, when he called, uh, he called hell other people without eyelids. You know, people are always looking at you. It's kind of like the rock star Sting and his uh, musical group uh, Police. You know, wherever you go, whatever you do, I'll be watching you. And that's exactly what was going on during that time. Now, that was a story about a jealous lover, but it fits this particular place here. Now, on top of the humiliating experience there in prison, Paul was emotionally attacked by fellow Christians. And uh, that we read that in the scriptures just a few minutes ago. But fellow believers were trying to capitalize on Paul's misfortune. And they were mean-spirited. You know, Paul's on the shelf. God is done with him. We're the new breed. And uh, this is coming from brothers in Christ. These were actually Christians that were talking about Paul this way. And when you begin to think about it, you know, their insecurities and their carnal behavior reminds us of what happens to you and me when we don't find our wholeness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Their slander was motivated by their lust for status. You know, I want the spotlight to be on Jesus, they said, but... They wanted to be on the perimeter of that light as well, so that when people looked at Jesus, they they saw me too type thing. Uh, In different scenarios, we all wrestle with the desire to be noticed. You know, and we can gauge our spirituality, however, by how we respond when we're upstaged, when we're overlooked, and when we're underappreciated. You know, Paul, who admittedly is further down the road than probably any of us in this room happen to be, uh, he says, so what? Christ is preached, and therein I rejoice. You see, Paul took the high road, but it wasn't easy, even for this spiritual giant, and it wasn't automatic. He had to learn, just like you and I, when it comes to dealing with disappointment in our own life. You know, it's natural For instance, for me, I'll use myself as an example, it's natural for me to care more about what you would say about me rather than what Christ says about me. It shouldn't be that way, but it's easy to be that way because what Christ says to me is audio. What you say to me about me is always going to be visual. And we got to kind of change that in our own hearts, don't we? And, and realize we want to please Christ first and foremost. It's kind of our vision of Pilgrim's Progress. You know, the journey is going to be great and difficult uh, because uh, our understanding of the ways of God are just simply incomplete. You know, I, I read a book a long time ago. It was a uh, a novel by a woman named Elizabeth Elliot. It was called No Graven Image. And there's a story about a woman who went to South America with the intent to translate the New Testament into the dialect of a very remote tribe in the jungle. 
And when she got there, she realized that there was only one person on the face of this earth that had actually knew English, knew Spanish, and knew the dialect of this tribe. And so she and this man got together and they began to do work in translating that dialogue year after year after year after year. And at the end of the novel, everything ends up falling apart. Uh, first of all, the worker that she was with who had endeared himself to the tribes, he had a penicillin reaction and died. And then the chief of the tribe led all of the people right into the, the, the place where this woman worked and says, what's this God of yours that you claim to be good doing? And uh, she couldn't answer them, and they made it, went immediately to her files, and they took all of the files, years and years of research, and they threw it into the river. And the book closes with these words. If God was merely my accomplice, then he's betrayed me. But if God was my king, then he freed me. And then she says, I can no longer label this work as useless or useful because in the end, it was all his anyway. And the Christian community saw the novel at that time as a travesty, an absolute travesty. She got letters and says God would never do that kind of a thing to a dedicated missionary. And she laughed at that because her novel was essentially an autobiography. She was part of those five couples that left Wheaton College after graduation and went down to Ecuador, deep in the Amazon, and uh, all of the five men were martyred. And she said, you know, too many people see God as their servant and not their king. And when he doesn't deliver, you know, us from adversity, we have a tendency to just walk away. You see, Paul understood that God was king. Even in the midst of the heartache he was enduring because of fellow Christians that were on the outside. Uh, you know, when he finds himself in chains, he wasn't going to give in to despair, but he was realistic. He understood that life under the sun, uh, he understood life under the sun, and he chose to make the most of his opportunities. And each shift, he got tied to another soldier, which gave him an opportunity to talk about the Lord and share the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in our text, uh, I want to just bring up one reminder, um, and that is, uh, lest our Christian faith be misunderstood. Uh, we all know the agony uh, of being misunderstood, and it's a hurtful thing. Uh, let me just share an example in my own life. It was more of a humorous thing than a hurtful thing, but it just shows you the reality of such. Um, I, way back uh, a number of years ago, maybe 20 years ago, early in my time here in Irvine, and I, uh, I got a life insurance policy with the under the condition that I check out medically. And so... Uh, they said, it's usually not a problem. We'll send a tech over to your office, and he or she will be able to check you out in 15 or so minutes, and uh, that'll be it. 
So I did no problem. And so I got a call from a, a lady, and she said, I'm the tech. Oh, can I come by at such and such a time? And I said, no problem at all. And so she showed up at the designated time and was shown where my office was and uh, knocked on the door. I opened up and I let her in. And she was probably not much older than my oldest son and, and pretty young lady and so forth. And she took a little blood. She took a little blood pressure. And then she says, take off your shirt. I says, all right. You know, my office door was wide open, so everything was above reproach and that kind of stuff. And so I took off the shirt, and she put some nodes on my chest, probably to make sure that I wasn't a robot or something like that. And then uh, she wrapped it up a few minutes later and says, well, that's it. And she grabbed her stuff and, and left. And so I went back uh, to my desk to put on my shirt, and I realized that she had left a file there. And so I put one, I had just gotten one sleeve in, in, in my arm here, and I busted out of there with this folder chasing this gal with my shirt half on and half off. And I ran right through a large secretarial administrative assistant pool there at Voyagers, and five or six women were standing around as I was busting by them. And I did catch her in the lot, and I gave her the folder, and she thanked me, and came back, and I looked and they were laughing at me, and I said, what? And they said, what you did, I'm sure it was pure, but it just didn't look very good, you know? And, I, you know, we all had a good laugh about that. Uh, but one of the things I do share is that Christianity never be misunderstood. And people that reject it oftentimes don't understand it. Uh, Paul reminds us that the essence of Christianity is Christ. It says in verse 21, may Christ, or verse 20, may Christ always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul never digressed from the person of Christ. His life was in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, with Christ, for Christ, from Christ, to live is Christ, to die is more of Christ. Uh, it was all about the Lord. You know, at, to live is Christ, to die more is Christ. You know, if we ever, as a church, for instance, take our eyes off the person and get our eyes on all of the horizontal stuff, all the peripheral stuff, all of the ministry stuff, all of the things that we do, if that becomes the number one thing, then invariably what's going to happen is that we'll become trite and we'll become moralistic. And we don't want that. Christianity is a love affair with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul asks only one fundamental question in life. How can this experience, whatever it happens to be, be in Christ? How can Christ be exalted in this situation? You know, and I have to quietly ask uh, regularly, is my faith like that? And over chunks of time, I've been able, as a believer, to make some progress. But making Christ preeminent is a lifelong endeavor, and we don't ever want to get our eyes off of that and focus on more peripheral stuff. That has to be the feeder for everything else. Uh, let me illustrate this a little bit. Um, I, I brought a camera today. Anybody 
heard of a Minolta SRT-102? You know, it's, it's almost 50 years old. And uh, it was a, a camera that I used for a long period of time. And uh, uh, it still works to, even to this day. And one of the things about these old-fashioned cameras is that nothing was really automatic here, you know. And it even had an aperture adjustment. Let's say, for instance, I want to take a picture of my lovely wife with a beautiful, majestic mountain in the background. And so I get on this thing, and I can adjust the aperture in such a way to where Suzanne is crystal clear, but the mountain is a little bit blurry. And uh, that reminds me very much of what marriage is like very early on. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, Suzanne is in focus, but everything behind her is always blurry. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like, what's going on during this time? Uh, you're blown away by adventure. You're blown away by discovery. Uh, it's not about homes. It's not about kids. It's not about furniture. It's really about her. And, you know, when you become a Christian, it's kind of the same way. Certainly when I became a Christian... I was 11th grade in high school, and I learned about something about Christ, what he did for me. And man, immediately I embraced that. And I knew Christ, and I loved Christ. I was redeemed by Christ, forgiven by Christ. He had given me eternal life. I didn't know much of anything about Christianity, but I knew about Christ because the lens was perfectly focused on him. Now, one of the things I can do is I can also adjust the aperture again on this thing to not only get Suzanne in focus, but also the majestic mountain behind her in focus as well. And you see, as marriage matures, there's a depth that's created. You take part in home life. You coordinate schedules, mow lawns, wash windows, change diapers. You know, you engage in all kinds of secondary jobs of married life. But your focus and your passion is still on the, on the person. So there's a wholeness to your love. Now, let me make the transfer over to our spirituality. As you grow in Jesus Christ, Christ is always central and in sharp focus. But the rest of my life has a way of coming into focus as well. I see everything in light of him. The Bible is unlocked. I learn how he wants me to behave. I learn how he wants me to treat my family and my co-workers. And I see that Christianity isn't a subculture. It's not a religious file that I put in the greater file drawer of my life. It's a culture. Christianity encompasses my entire life. I develop a Christian worldview where work life and friendship life and family life are brought under the umbrella of my life in Christ. Now, I can adjust the aperture one more time to where I can get uh, the beautiful, majestic mountain in clear focus, but my wife is blurry. Uh, you know, and marriage is now, you know, becomes a little bit different. You know, all of us who have been married for any length of time uh, understand what it's like to slide from a passion for our partner to just simply the activities of married life. We get caught up in paying bills 
and juggling kids and coaching sports and making ends meet. And, but the glory and the beauty of the wife, of your wife, though still in the picture, gets a little blurred. And just in the midst of all of the frenzy and activity that's going on. And marriage is now, functionally at least, defined in terms of what we do rather than in whom we delight. Uh, How many wives have ever, don't raise your hands on this, but how many wives have ever said, honey, I, I just don't feel cherished by you like I used to be cherished by you? And the typical response of the average husband, including a husband I know extremely well, uh, is, what do you mean? I, I, I Look at all the stuff I do, the hard work, the sacrifice, I'm loyal. And see, what she's doing is not questioning our volitional commitment. What she's wanting to do is recapture our emotional delight. And sometimes that shame shift takes place uh, in our own Christian life. You know, the object of our focus is no longer Jesus Christ. It's in all of the activities that we do that's somewhat on the periphery of being related to a church. Uh, Instead of focusing on one person, uh, I define my Christianity in terms of what I do. Well, I work with Promised Land. I I work with the youth group. I'm a Bible study leader. I'm a member of the whole church leadership team. Uh, You know, when I define my identity... In all of the religious activities, uh, I I realize that I've come up with something that's just not good, even though the activities are good. But if they become the focus, I end up with a passionless faith. You know, I'm moral, I attend church, I give generously. But I've traded intimacy with a person for an institutionalized brand of the Christian faith that will never satisfy or inspire our hearts. So it's got to continue to be Christ. And Paul says, you know what? I'm just not satisfied with, with just activity. I'm not just satisfied. It's got to be focused on Jesus Christ. Now listen to, again, the, these words. I'll, I'll read them from the passage we read a few minutes ago. Uh, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I'm I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And Paul speaks of death here as gain. Now, we usually consider death as loss, and we all understand why. I mean, I did a memorial service last Saturday. Uh, Two uh, grown sisters with families of their own lost their dear mother, who was a wonderfully winsome lady. And uh, her home going was a, a tremendous loss for them here on earth, but it was a tremendous gain for her. Paul doesn't say that earthly life is bad. You know, Paul says earthly life is good. He says, I'm hard-pressed between choosing to remain and choosing to depart. The contrast between life on earth and life in heaven 
is not a contrast between good and bad. It's a contrast between good and far better. Heaven is not a marginal gain. It's an infinitely greater gain. Now, all of us cling to hope. Uh, Hope comes in two flavors. We hope for something is one, or we hope in someone is the other part. Uh, Remember the old movie Shawshank Redemption? How many of you saw that? Okay. Most of you saw that. Uh, You know, Tim Robbins, one star, and Morgan Freeman, the other star of the, the movie itself, were engaged in this ongoing discussion about hope. Um, Morgan Freeman had learned to manage disappointment by giving up on hope. And you remember when he says to Tim Robbins, he says, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can break your heart. To Tim Robbins, though, uh, to quit hoping is to start dying. And uh, the final line of the movie, you know, Tim Robbins, he escapes miraculously from Shawshank and eventually Morgan Freeman gets out and he goes through this difficult kind of adjustment to life as a free man again. But the final line of the entire movie, as he's making his way down the beach to his friend working on a boat in the blue waters of the Pacific there in Mexico, the final line is, I hope. You know, when hope in something breaks your heart, you know, we can mitigate that a little bit by hoping in someone. And in Jesus Christ, we have a hope that will not disappoint, that will not fade away. And if I had uh, one desire for my own life and one desire for our church here is that individually we would have an eternal hope in Jesus Christ and being like him, and let that govern everything that we do. It will not disappoint. It will never, ever fade away. Father, thanks you for our time and this day and the worship that we've enjoyed and um, the realization, Lord, that uh, you want to be our chief delight. And I pray that... uh, You would, in fact, uh, continue to encourage us in that direction, uh, not to get caught up uh, in all of the peripheral stuff, thinking that's the essence. But, Father, it's our personal walk and our joy that you walk with us that uh, makes life good, even here on earth in the midst of our own current heartache. We thank you, we love you, and we praise your name.